llamo Garrett McQueen. Y me llamo Scott Blankenship. Esto es Triloquy, historias verdades y reales de los flecos de la música clásica. Bienvenidos a Triloquy. We, or... <laughs> <laughs> Mixing up my romance languages. C. <laughs> uh, I, I thought we would uh, start things off in Spanish today just to, uh, well, first of all, not not to get too political, but did you see the uh, debates where uh, the, the candidates were trying to speak some Spanish? Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> what did you think of that? I love the look on Cory Booker's face yes. when Beto went off. He was are you, you're, you're going to do this? And, ba- and Beto went, went off indeed. You, yeah. you know, I, I can't have a political conversation. You know, my official second language is Japanese, but I couldn't have a political conversation in that language. Are you able to do that in any other language? I took Spanish all the way through high school, so I can I can kind of get a feel for what they're talking about, but I don't know any of the specifics. Well, I, I guess that's about it for us in the end. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the guest on today's opus uh, knows Spanish very well, my good friend Alex. And uh, before we get into his conversation, Scott, I wanted to talk about the difficulty of meeting people when you move to another place. And then when you finally do meet people or, or meet a person, how you kind of latch on. So you talk about how uh, when you moved to the Twin Cities, that was your first big move. Oh, yeah. Um, I made many, many big moves in my life. So after uh, graduating from undergrad in Memphis, the first place I moved to, the first place I lived was Los Angeles. I um, I, I drove cross country, thirty, thir- something like 33 or 34 hours in the car. I actually enjoyed the car ride. You get to see how diverse of a landscape uh, America has. You know, you go from the, you know, the sort of the swampiness of Memphis and and the Mid-South to, you know, when you go through Arkansas, getting into uh, Oklahoma, it starts to look much more uh, drier, greener, lots of pine trees and stuff. The plains. Yeah, and then you get over into the panhandle of Texas where all of a sudden it's like desert and yeah. you, you see nothing but tumbleweeds. Tumbleweeds are a real thing. I was excited <laughs> to see them in real life. You know, um, getting into um, what's next? New Mexico, Arizona, and then you cross over the border to California and you think you've made it, but you got a long way to go still. I mean, it's still like four hours or something on the drive anyway. So um, moved to Los Angeles to go to uh, USC. And it was rough for me at first because I didn't know anyone uh, in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, I felt really alone there. And I did eventually um, make friends. And uh, one of them was Alex, who's featured on this uh, this opus of Triloquy. And, um, you know, I I say all that uh, just to ask you about sort of your way of meeting people and 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 getting rooted here in the Twin Cities when you moved here, what, 13 years ago. It took a really long time. And I was a little bit disappointed at how closed the society was here. I mean, you know, you hear rumors, but you always think, well, that's, you know, people are making jokes or something that it's, it really can't be that bad. They they used to say the best way to meet someone in Minnesota is to have gone to kindergarten with them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or high school or you're in college or your cousins or something like that. Um, And what I tried to do was continue on a tradition that I had in Omaha, which was hosting dinner parties when we had, we had a rotating dinner party in my building every other week, you mm-hmm. know, and there was always new people coming, and I loved it. And I always thought that food was the great equalizer, you know, because I and I love to share food to this day, to this day, <laughs> because, um, I mean, when you when you've got a bunch of different people around the table, 
and you have some good food and some good drink, by the time you're at the end of it, it's really hard to be mad about something. It is, know, or, uh, especially with the drink. Well, I, I, it, it can go the other way if <laughs> if it doesn't go too great. But. By the way, Saturday night, Sunday was a long slog. Oh, me. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was, oh, yeah, we, we kind of hit the town a little bit. Um, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> Let me finish that thought, though. So uh, moving here and trying to get that sort of... Um, that sort of existence, that sort of lifestyle going again just wasn't happening. And and I used to beat up on other people and beat up on myself about it. But then again, I thought, well, why why are you holding up the people that you're meeting now against the people that you knew for years in your old hometown? Yeah. But having said that, the main reason why I didn't move away until I was 36 years old was just fear. You know, I was really afraid of, of being lost, of being in a different city and not knowing anybody or knowing where to go. So I'm really sympathetic f- with your experience of going to some th- someplace like Memphis over to Los Angeles. Yeah. But then if you couple that with you're moving to a different country and maybe you don't have a firm grasp on the language and those people don't want you there. Yeah. That, that has a whole uh, a whole nother level to it. Um, but but yeah, through the difficulties, I. I made uh, great friendships that I really uh, appreciate to this day. This day. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, the the other thing I wanted to say before we get into uh, this interview, um, you know, I, I cannot underscore um, the closeness of, of of our relationship. So, um, you know, every, everywhere I've moved, you know. After Los Angeles, it was Detroit. Uh, while living in Detroit, it was New York a lot. Then to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I didn't know anyone, you know, here to the Twin Cities. Everywhere I've moved, I've managed to really um, cultivate a really um, tight relationship uh, with someone. Um, you know, lots of folks in Memphis, Alex in Los Angeles, Jonathan um, in New York, Shelley in Knoxville, you, Scott, here in uh, the Twin Cities. So um, I want to dedicate uh, this episode, this opus of Triloquy, to friendship. So this is the story of my dear friend, Alex. Alex Rosales Garcia, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks, man. I um, I was sure to get your whole name and, and make sure I had it right, because um, I've seen you on social media talk before about how important it is for people to understand that that is your whole name. What, what what's, what's behind that? Teach us about the three name name that you carry yeah um so basically uh i do have three names uh well i mean to be to be more specific i have four names if you include my middle name but that's pretty common with uh i'm gonna say mexican naming um practices but it comes from spain so you get your mother's uh last name and your father's last name so my first name is uh alexis my middle name is saeed my father's last name is rosales and my mother's last name is garcia uh, so to shorten it down, it's just Alex Rosales Garcia. And and you you speak from not just having uh, Mexican heritage, but being from Mexico, right? Yeah. So I was born in in Morelia, Mexico, um, and then immigrated to the to the U.S. later on. But yeah. Um, I know the story of how you came here, but I think the listeners would really appreciate hearing that story as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a, a different story, uh, for people that aren't used to hearing it, uh, for others, it's, it's a very common story. Um, but 
basically, I I moved to to Tijuana, which is uh, you know border town uh, right. in California, and lived there for probably like a year or so. And keep in mind, I was in kindergarten, so I had very little knowledge, and all these moves were happening without me knowing anything. Um, so all I knew is I was going to get a kindergarten in Tijuana. Um, as a lot of people in Tijuana and San Diego and basically all of Southern California do, they go to visit the San Diego Zoo. That, that's just a normal um, thing. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, everybody knows in the U.S. The, the San Diego Zoo is the spot as far as zoos are concerned. Right. Um, so we all got on a, on a bus and we crossed the border into the San Diego Zoo. What was different about my story compared to all the other classmates um, was that me and a couple of other students were pulled to the side and we were told, um, we're actually going to give you a different passport and your, your name, my name at that time was going to be Jose, um, even though I just explained to you what my actual name was. Right. Uh, but young me was was more very naive and kind of cute and was like, no, but my name is, is Alex. <laughs> um, and they're like, no, 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 it'll, it'll be Jose. I was like, okay, sure. And where are we going? We're going to the zoo. Okay, fine. Fine by me. Um, so we get to the border. Um, the agents don't actually talk to me ever. Uh, it, it, I mean, at that time, this was uh, mid-90s, so 1995, I believe it was. Sure. Um, they just kind of like counted the number of passports and counted the number of kids and, all right, you're good to go. Uh, as soon as that bus crossed the U.S. border, uh, they pulled me and the two other students out. Uh, and I believe that bus continued on its way to the San Diego Zoo, and nothing was different about that. But me and the other uh, three three total students uh, were taken to this home, and we just kind of chilled in that home for a while. I do remember the home in particular because they had Super Nintendo, and that was like that was the it thing at the time. Um, so I realize now that I was waiting for my grandmother to cross the border uh, legally through her visa because she she's never had any interest in living in the U.S. Wait, so sorry, did um, you know whose home this was? You were. Uh, staying at with the Super Nintendo? No clue. So, no clue. To this day, just... To this day, you like don't a, even know. Yeah, to this day, I just kind of pictured it um, as a... Almost like a babysitter. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was just like there were so many kids there. And, like, there was kids in, like, the kitchen, in, like, all the different rooms, in the backyard, like, running around playing soccer. And I was, like, in the living room with a bunch of other kids, and... There's only one controller, I remember that, in the Super Nintendo and a bunch of students just kind of sitting around, or kids. Um, anyway, so I, I waited there for what seemed um, like a while, and I and I did start realizing at one point, like, okay, what's actually going on? Like, are we going to the zoo still? Like, what, what's happening here? And then uh, a gentleman came and told me, like, um, hey, come with me. And, uh, okay, sure, I'll go with him. I, I mean, I have no other choice, really, at this point. And we... They took me to some mall. I realize now it's in San Isidro, which is right across on the American side. Uh, and that's when I met my, re-met up with my grandmother and my aunt. Um, and then they said, you know, we're going to get on on a bus, I believe it was. And we're going to drive all the, uh, get on a bus and ride all the way up to San Francisco, uh, where you'll meet up with your mom. Oh, so my that's goodness. Basically, yeah, so that's the story of uh, how I crossed here illegally. Um, and I leave. I lived undocumented in the United States from 1995 till 2005. Uh, in 2005, I became a resident, 
Uh, and then in 2015, I became finally a full American citizen. I, I want to sort of understand some more of the details of this. Yeah. So when you left home in Tijuana uh, that morning mm -hmm. to go to the zoo, who are you leaving behind at home? Was your mom there? No. So my um, so just a little bit of context. In 1984, there was a pretty dramatic um, like economic crash in Mexico, and it hit my state in particular. Um, Michoacan pretty hard because uh, I mean we're all kind of farmers and it was kind of called the tortilla famine at times anyway um, my, my mother had already come to the United States before that so okay. she was already living in the United States and her story is quite dramatic like she actually scaled the wall so and like ran yeah so 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 what was your relationship with that as a kid did you know that your mom had crossed the border that she had left indefinitely I did not know my mom actually Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I, I didn't know uh, my mom. So I just knew that there was this really nice lady from far away sending me all these little toys. And oh I realized now that I thought it was really cute, but my mom was doing the best that she could. And they were all just like McDonald's, like play meal toys, which I mean, for me, it was fine. Like, I was, this is great. This is awesome. I'm just getting free toys in the mail. You are making um, my eyes swell up right now because <laughs> because you as a kid, you know, you, you can't know that on the other side of the border is this woman who's your mom just thinking about you the whole time and wanting the best for you and hoping that, you know, everything goes right and she gets to see you again. Right. I mean, she, she, she really went through the entire, str you know, stressful process. And I mean, keep in mind, there was obviously no cell phones at that time. So right. I do remember my grandma stopping at uh like pay phones and just like calling every so often like you know we're here now we're there now and i remember my grandma and i talked to her to this day she's like i was so nervous like waiting for you at that mall where you know that was a meetup place where we're gonna re-meet up again and i was just so nervous waiting for you and like were you actually gonna be there like were these people the coyotes you know like yeah. were they were they actually honest because i don't know how much money they they paid but i know that my mom paid you know a couple grand to get to bring me over Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, I'm sure that, you know, talking with your mom and your grandma today, it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys have to revisit those stories so often. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. And there's a lot of empathy, I guess, going along uh, along with that as well with a lot of other people that are, are going through the same um, or have gone through the same. Because like like I mentioned in the beginning, it's it's kind of kind of a common story within some certain aspects of our American community. Um, well, in other aspects, it's kind of like, you know, that's very, very different. So, um, so anyway, you, um, you know, you were, you were picked up at the mall, uh, you rode mm -hmm. a bus up to San Francisco and then, mm -hmm. um, began your life. Um, you know, something I wanted to make sure I asked you, how comfortable are you telling that story, um, with the state of things today? I mean, children in detention centers, do, do yeah. you, do, do you feel like you're, you're giving something away our, our cross, uh, you know, uh, trips from Mexico to San Diego to the zoo, still a thing for students. I mean, what's your, what's your perspective right. on how your story relates to today? Uh, things are certainly dramatically different. I would say now, um, the border is so, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, my mom actually climbed the wall and ran to the nearest Motel 6, and she knew some English, and she was the lightest, you know, of my entire family, she's, you know, the lightest skinned, so she could pass off as American. Um, and that, I mean, just that in itself just does not happen anymore. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is you, you get a lot of programs where you, 
you end up pushing people to places in the border that are not heavily guarded, but that's usually like in the middle of the desert. Um, and so the cross now is significantly more dangerous uh, than it was in, I mean, early 90s, late 80s. Uh, with respect to, to the children's camp now, I mean, that, that's that's just awful. You know, that's that's just genuinely awful. And I do, you know, now that you're, you're mentioning it, like, man, that could have been me. You know, I was in, technically an unaccompanied minor crossing the border. Um, and I would have fallen if, you know, if my story was in, you know, 2018 or 2019 and not 1995, then I would be in, you know, Clint, that Clinton facility in Texas, you know, that would, that would be me. And that's, that's horrifying. So the state of affairs now are definitely much, much more dangerous, Garrett, to be honest with you, than they were when I crossed. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll definitely get into the, you know, the, the story of how you got into music and eventually made it out into a career. But I just think that story is so incredible and you talk about uh you described it as the uh tortilla famine it's not <laughs> it's not just people from south of the border wanting to come here because they just want to come here but because in a way um there's a feeling that you have to right yeah yeah i mean absolutely um my yeah man that, that, that's that's absolutely right um it just felt like what are our options if you're farmers in Mexico? You can move to the capital of our state, and we already live in one of the, the poorer states. So, I mean, that's, that's not, you know, it's moving more laterally than moving up. Or at that time, you could try to move to Mexico City, and from my mom's own account, anytime she went to Mexico City, she's like, you know, you can't wear any jewelry, you can't wear any fancy clothes, or, you'll, you know, you'll get, you'll get attacked on the street. Which even now, that's completely different from Mexico City today in 2019. But you know, back then it was much more dangerous. So your option was, um, well, let, let's go north. Let's let's go north because we're, we're we've run out of options in our own home, and we need to put food on the table. Um, and that to me makes a lot of sense. Do you ever feel any obligation to one day return to Michoacan or Mexico in general to to do your part in in doing something? I don't even know. Yes and no, and that almost touches a little bit on like identity, like what I, what course. do I identify as? Right. Um, it, it's it's yes, I would say yes. I I feel some attachment to going back and and helping just because my my grandparents still live there. I mentioned earlier my in Michoacan. Yeah, they they have zero interest in ever living in the U.S. Um, so they they are still there. Um, my entire heritage is there, if that makes any sense. Like, I, I don't feel like a minority there. Yeah. To put it lightly, like yeah. it feels like it's, it's my, my ground. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, geez, man, I'm, I've been living in the United States since 1995. Like I fully consider myself, you know, American. I'm a diehard Giants fan. <laughs> um, so it, it's a little bit of both. Um, and I've basically, I've accepted and gone to the point in my life where if I cross the border into Tijuana, it feels like home. And at the same time, if I cross the border back into San Diego, it also feels like home. But do you feel comfortable doing that with everything going on these days? Even even I, with your papers and your le your legal status? Yes, I do feel comfortable uh, with that um, because I do have citizenship now. Um, and there was a little bit of time where, you, you know, the citizenship card, citizenship, was like a, this card that like, you know, you can't touch me. ICE can't 
no longer touch me. I'm a full citizen. I do everything completely by the law. I've never been arrested, never gotten in trouble, you know. So I do feel like I have, like, the safeguard around me, which um, makes me confident crossing the border. Like, I know my rights. I know what I can go. I know that when I cross into Mexico, I have my Mexican passport and I have my American passport as well. So even with all the things happening at the border now, and I did mention it did get more dangerous, if you have citizenship, it all of that, it's almost like you're protected from it. And then you talk about, you know, identity and, and feeling safe and, and feeling right. home. And unfortunately, that isn't always the case for you or even people like me within the walls of classical music, if if you right. know what I mean. So um, you and I met um, at USC and um, we instantly had like a, a really tight bond. And in retrospect, for me, I feel like it was a bond in sort of being or at least feeling like the outsider um, in that space. Um, of course, going to USC was, you know, some pipe dream for me. I just wanted to live in Los Angeles, Southern California, didn't really know anything about the prestige of that school. But right. but with your being from California and doing your um, undergraduate work uh, at UC Irvine, uh, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. You, you have a you had a perspective on that school and that institution. Uh, did you feel like identity or or race? would be a conversation um, for you as a student at the University of Southern California? Um, no, actually. <laughs> and this That's is, good to this hear. Is where, yeah. yeah, no, because um, I was I was naive, to be very, very honest with you. Um, I knew that once I was graduating from UC Irvine, I knew I wanted to go into bassoon. And I just looked up schools in California because I didn't want to leave California. Um, so I was like, well, I, I, I think this USC school is pretty pretty good for bassoon and so is san francisco conservatory uh i'll just apply there so i just applied to both of those schools usc and san francisco conservatory i had a significantly better um audition at usc than at san francisco um got more money because of that to go to usc than san francisco and i ended up at usc and like you know you mentioned that's where we met but it wasn't till i got to usc that i was like whoa there's it's it's white you know, there are, it is yeah there are no other mexican much less undocumented musicians at the school well before we get specifically into your time our time at usc for people who've never gone through um a school audition process uh sort of paint that picture for me what what was it like auditioning at usc versus you say at the san francisco conservatory and and the factors that that you think led to a better audition at usc Right. Uh, well, like you mentioned, um, I was uh, graduating from UC Irvine, which UC Irvine from USC is without traffic under an hour, maybe an hour at most. So it's it's I mean, you just kind of drive there, which is what I did. I drove there, parked, um, warmed up. And I had friends that had already graduated from Irvine and had gone on to USC School of Music. Mm. So I was texting them asking them like you know where do i park like what should i expect what does the building look like so i was much more clear about that and i think that uh just made me feel more comfortable and in my zone when i was auditioning um as opposed to san francisco um even though my i mean you 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 and i believe your listeners know san francisco is very expensive of course yeah um so my family has been moving away from san francisco you know as the years progress so they actually live out uh, in north, like 
the North Bay, which is Vallejo. So it's about 45 minutes to an hour from San Francisco Conservatory Music. But I had to fly home first and then borrow my mom's car to come back down. And there's parking is impossible at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Um, and ultimately, I, I didn't feel so much in my zone, even though technically it was my hometown, if it yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't have the best um, audition. Uh, I still did well, and I, I did still get into the school, but I, I think that was reflected in my financial aid package. Mm, I see. Which yeah. eventually, yeah. It, it, it's something how we just don't really think about the outside factors that come inside for us. Um, because, you know, I... Um, I sent a CD and and got admitted to USC. So I was, you know, in my living room feeling completely comfortable. And I just never would have thought how, you know, the stresses of getting in and out in the city because, you know, L.A. traffic is nuts anyway. Right. Um, so, wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so, yeah, you, you, right. you, you ended up at um, at USC. What, what, what were those um, what were those first few I won't even say days but first few weeks or maybe that first month like for you did you feel like this was going to lead you to the profession do you did you feel like you made the right move in those you know in, in your first few weeks at USC absolutely not oh wow talk to me about it was, that <laughs> it, it was it was awful and I'm hoping you don't have this memory um, but in the first master class at USC um, I was finally exposed to, I mean, I don't know, do you remember how big the, the bassoon studio was at that time? I think there were like nine or ten of us. Right, nine or ten plus the two teachers, right? Yeah. Um, and I had to play uh, during the master class, and I was just completely out of my zone. I was like, what, what, I have to play for all these people so they could just sit there and judge me? <laughs> like, really? Like, I, I never did that at Irvine because, I mean... Irvine's great, but it doesn't have a bassoon studio that has nine people. Um, so I, I was freaking out. Um, I had a nervous breakdown during... I was playing Chike 5, I remember that now. Uh, the third or fourth movement or something like uh -huh. that, some bassoon excerpt. Yeah. And I started, like, shaking, like, shivering, because I was just so nervous. I was just so not used to it. And uh, the first few weeks can be characterized as me taking a dramatic step back in my progress as a musician because I was so not used to playing in front of other people. I wasn't used to always being put on the spot. And you had a new teacher on top of all of this. I, I, yeah, I had a new teacher. It, it was, you know, a, a new city, a new, even though, like I mentioned, it was only like an hour away. I was still trying to get used to, like you mentioned it earlier, the traffic is a thing when you're living it daily. Um, yeah, in short, it was very, very difficult for me the first few weeks just to get adjusted. It was... A lot of nervous breakdowns trying to figure things out and, and eventually it got better but I did take one dramatic step backwards before I can move forward again so where did you find solace what what helped you move forward from that giant step back um, well I, I don't honestly there was two people at my very 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 first year which is I think the only year that you and I actually crossed over right um, it was you and Sean, my teacher. Hmm. <laughs> really? And it was it was you, and if you remember also Jordan, she was another mutual yeah. friend of ours. Shout out to Jordan. She's um, so sweet. Shout yeah. out to Jordan, yeah. We we would always hang out, and we would have these moments where we would literally go to the taco truck and just decompress, and that really helped a lot. I, um, I, I talk about those taco truck trips all the time, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we would literally do that all the time, and I would invite you 
to Giants games, and you would come along with your magazines, but you would come along <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just, it's and that's what um, you know. My difficulties started after I got into the profession because I didn't have that sense of community. And I feel like when we're in school, especially grad school, on the cusp of really branching out, we might take for granted how important it is to to have those friends and have that um, support system to just help you get through. Because taking lessons and uh, and all of that can can just be so stressful on top of, you know, writing papers and and, and doing everything else you have to do at a school like USC. Absolutely. And to that extent, also shout out to Sean, because he was at that moment very personable with me and very understanding and flexible. Um, and boy, did I lie sometimes just to get out of lessons because I was <laughs> you know, unprepared and just like was not ready for the workload of graduate school and figuring it out. But man, was he really flexible and did not give up and I had you and Jordan to, to help me there, and it was it worked out. I'll, I'll, I would say that, yeah. I'll give Sean Mauser a shout out, I guess. But <laughs> but since you have since you've brought his name up, and since now we're here, I feel like it's a great time to revisit the story that you know that what I'm thinking about. <laughs> the story. So uh, so um, most of the time. Um, and you remember this, Alex, you know, I, I was placed principal uh, in the orchestra. You know, I was yeah. I was that bad B, as they say. And... Until you left and then I became that batter B. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for one piece in particular, Shostakovich's Ninth Symphony, it has such a huge bassoon part that um, uh, Sean Mauser and my teacher, Judy Farmer, uh, decided to audition for it, um, you know, just oh. to give everyone an equal shot and, and all that sort of thing. Um, I won that it audition. audition. It was a blind audition. I won it anyway. Um, <laughs> but but I uh, was very interested in like the feedback and you know when you're in school, um, you know hearing what your teacher has to say and getting the critiques and all that stuff is is very important. Well, um, when I reached out to Sean, uh, your teacher Sean Mauser, mm -hmm. through email for his feedback, he never responded. And then I caught him like in the halls or something one day and um, he, in my memory, it was very rude. Uh, and he mm -hmm. says, oh, well, I, I don't have anything for you. And that um, caused a schism between the two of us, me and you, you yeah. know? <laughs> well, what, what's, what's, what's your take, you know, now years later, what, what is your take on, on that situation? Well, I think it's funny now because like ultimately it's like, it's Shostakovich nine. Like, who cares? You know, like at the end of the but, day. But back then, at the you end know. of the day. But but back then, I just remember thinking like, I think Garrett's wrong on this one, and that's what that's what caused the I think the little rift. And it wasn't a very long rift because we still ended up hanging out. Of course. Um, you felt like I yeah, wasn't entitled to anything from him. Not necessarily. I just felt like. If you look at the actual music, I still remember it's a particular D flat that you wanted to like grow to and then be like really quiet and subtle to be extra musical. Yeah, and I, I, like even. I did. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I was also very literal, um, and I, I'm gonna say at that time I was more literal than I am now with what's written in the music. And I was like, well, no, Shostakovich is this way. You clearly did not do it that way, Garrett. So it is wrong. It's very like a binary way of looking at things. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think, um, I'm not speaking for Sean, but I think that's probably where he was coming from. It's like, well, it's not what's written in the music. And if Shostakovich would have wanted that more dramaticism, then he would, have, he would have written that. Whereas you were coming from a, like, I'm just trying to, you know, make something out of it and try to be different because, God, it's always played the same way. Um, so 
in you know the years that have passed, I can see both sides now. I can definitely see you know, I could stand up for you, and I could also still stand up for for Sean. He doesn't need somebody to stand, you know stand up for myself more. But yeah. So if you had to pl- if you had to play Shasti Nine today, mm-hmm. would you have a more literal interpretation or one that was more dramatic, one more you know one that's more interpretive? I would have a more literally dramatic interpretation, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I would uh, try to express myself as much as I can within the constraints that Shostakovich wanted. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, wow, it's, it's great to go back <laughs> to, yeah. to that time. I'm, I'm glad we finally did make up because it was a little while where we weren't speaking. Oh, yeah, it, it, we all felt it, too, on both of the studios. <laughs> oh oh you're saying so sean's studio so it was kind of sean's studio versus judy's studio i mean you said that yourself <laughs> you said that yourself at times and it was very competitive at usc at that time i'm realizing um but it, it was good it was a healthy competition like we all hung out but we all took auditions pretty seriously and we all tried doing our best to represent our studios right and you know and i remember being in the weird situation of and, and I feel comfortable saying this. Most people saw me as, you know, at the top of of the bassoonists at USC. Mm-hmm. And I felt uncomfortable um, creating um, what I felt like was unnecessary competition there. But that's what the music industry is. Certainly classical music. When you go take that audition, only yeah. one of you is going to win it. And, and that's that. So I, I guess for me, I, I think that competitive nature that was sort of created in that situation and other situations ultimately helped us both out in the end because we, uh, we both eventually um, won jobs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to be fair, after you had left, we, that competitive nature continued. Um, me and another student, Brittany, at that time continued that, like, competitiveness. And then... Um, yeah, shout out to Brittany, students, yeah. Yeah, shout out to Brittany as well. Um, and, or at least I felt it. She's probably like, what? <laughs> or at least I felt the, the competitive nature. Um, but it, it was healthy and it, it was good and it was necessary. And you said it best. It both helped us out. So um, in, in the midst of, you know, finishing up at USC, you were also cultivating a nice little um, career for yourself in Los Angeles, not as a, a member of a uh, a full-time orchestra or anything in Los Angeles, but just teaching. Um, and it seems like specifically you were teaching um, youth that looked like you or could speak to uh, an experience similar to yours as someone um, who's Mexican-American. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I am a teaching artist for the LA Philharmonic's uh, YOLA, which is Youth Orchestra Los Angeles. It's an El Sistema-inspired program. Um, and yeah, I began, began teaching there, um, I don't know, probably like halfway through my graduate school at USC. And at that time there was, you know, one, one bassoon student, literally. Um, at, at, at the, in the YOLA program. In the YOLA program. Yes. In the YOLA program. Um, since then the studio has like, you know, dramatically grown and, you know, shrank and grown again, but it's averaged more or less within the last couple of years between like six and nine students. Um, and you're right, most of them are Latino, specifically Mexican, American students, and uh, undocumented as well. Wow. Um, so it's, I, I taught from a very, like, personal point of view, if that makes any sense. Like, I, oh, of I like, you know, like, I've lived through this, guys. Like, I've done, done a lot of these things as well. And here's what worked for me. I'm not saying it's going to work for you, but to give you an idea for you to take ownership of your own education, um, here's what I did and here's what helped me out. And 
I got really attached to that, if that makes any sense. I mean, do you, I, I kind of, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I was just going to say, do you feel like you're more effective, you have more of an impact with those students because you have that lived experience? Because you're, you know, you're, you're, an, you're a phenomenal musician. You can teach students of any color. But again, there has to be something very specific about teaching uh, Mexican students for you. Um, right. I mean, and like I mentioned, like a lot of my students are Mexican, not necessarily all of them. So you're, you definitely have a point there. But I, I'm able to, in short, Garrett, I'm able to balance like very structured and disciplined musical training with the personal and like being very personal. And like sometimes we I teach lessons completely in Spanish. Um, and that's, you know, sometimes a challenge for both of us is just like, well, how do you say um, your D flat is sharp in Spanish? <laughs> uh, like, you know, um, because, so it's, it's, because it's, you, you learned um, because you learned music through English. Yeah, the American A B C D E F, yeah. you know, method. Yeah, so it's 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 fun and it's very rewarding. And I think I've been successful at it because as I mentioned earlier, I'm able to balance the personal with the very structured as well. And then, of course, your affiliation with Yola has um, taken you back to Mexico uh, yeah. since then, right? Talk to me about uh, one of those trips. Uh, right. So I was um, I, I worked for the Gustavo Dudamel Foundation in one of their encuentros, which is it means the encounters. But um, in this particular encounter, which is um, God, I think it was March of 2018 now. So a while ago, last year, um, the point was we would have Canadian students, um, Americans and a lot of American students, you know, Yola. We had the Atlanta Music Project. Um, Miami music, just a lot of students from the United States, a significant amount of students from Mexico, students from Argentina, Puerto Rico, a lot from Venezuela, of course, because El Sistema is Venezuelan. Um, and they all came together in Mexico City, and they're, they're basically trying to figure out what things we have in common. Um, and I was particularly good at that job because I spoke English and Spanish pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my Venezuelan counterparts struggled more on the English side. A lot of my American counterparts struggled more on the Spanish side. But I fit this like very particular niche where I was like, hey, I'm really good at this particular thing. Like I can switch between Spanish and coach, you know, your way through Shostakovich pretty easily. Um, so I, I found myself really um, excelling at that. Or I found my niche, like to to put to put it, put it better. For me, for me, when I think about, um, you know, going home and, and going into into some of the uh, communities that I grew up with, I have to ask myself: Does this thing called classical music even matter to them, or should it even matter to them? I mean, is that something that you ever think of, especially being back in your in your birth country? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm just gonna say it outright. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. And I'm, I'm almost using classical music to teach them these really valuable life skills that sometimes Mexican-American students or Latino students in general, black students in general, don't have access to. So how can we teach them Dvorak or, you know, whatever it is that they're learning, but teach them actually how to be leaders, how to speak up for themselves, how to take, I said ownership earlier, how to take ownership for their education through, you know, playing bassoon, playing Dvorak's New World Symphony on bassoon, and how can we create this community between, you know, Argentinian students all the way down there and uh, New Brunswick students in Canada? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're trying to use classical music. And, you know, I've thought about this and I've thought your, about your, your question. Not that you've asked me before, I've just thought about it on my own. No, I mean, I, I could be trying to teach him these life skills using karate, you know, using soccer, but... Classical music just happens to be music. the path that, you know, you're meeting yeah. them on. Exactly. But, yeah. but, but to be fair, I guess, when you say ownership, um, I, I think that um, Mexico very uh, rightfully has ownership of classical music when you think about all of these Mexican composers, the tradition mm -hmm. of um, Mexican music. I, I mean, I'll call it Mexican classical music, traditional um, mariachi playing, other, mm -hmm. other traditional sounds. That has to, um, you know, uh, showcasing that to young Mex Mexican students has to be a, a, a way to... Uh, you know, so, sort of help them understand more about themselves and their culture, it would seem to me anyway. Absolutely. And I think we're giving them a tool to explore that. Um, for example, uh, three weeks ago, uh, yeah, three weeks ago, we finished up uh, Yola Camp. So it's uh, every summer for two weeks, we take these, you know, kids from L.A., go up to the mountains in Idlewild. It's like 7,000 feet up in the mountains. Oh, yeah. Shout out to and, Idlewild. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like a very intensive uh, it's like a very intensive music making process. And within this, um, it's very, you know, traditional style of teaching music, you know, like there's a quarter note, eighth notes, intonation is, you know, you have to listen and match and you have to blend the sound and everything. We're teaching them these skills, but we also give them this opportunity to explore other aspects of music that they feel comfortable with. And in, in one of our skits of, for the talent show, we have this like little talent show at the end of the week. Uh, the students played banda music on their own. So oh, they wow. took all these skills that they learned and they played traditional Mexican banda music and they danced traditional Oaxacan um, jarabes. And I'm just, I'm thinking like, you know, that would have never happened if we hadn't just taught them these skills as a first place. Like, you know, how to read music, how to play clarinet, how to play the tuba, how to play the trombone, how to, you know, work as an ensemble, how to conduct yourself. They took those skills and they created their own banda. At our program in East Los Angeles at Torres, there's a student-run cumbia group. So I feel like they're connecting more with the roots now that they have these skills. And they're kind of branching out and growing on their own. And that's that's beautiful. I mean, that's what it's about, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. So talk yeah. to me about um, that as it relates to your career as a performer, as a bassoonist with the Las Vegas Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. Do, do you feel like, um, I'm not asking you to throw your organization under the, well, yeah, you have <laughs> tenure at this point, right? Yes, I do. Uh, okay, so we can so we can uh, trash them if we want to. Do you <laughs> do you feel like they are playing enough music by Mexican composers? I mean, I, I just feel like automatically the answer is no. No, I mean, and, and there's not many orchestras, particularly like in the Southwest, that are neighbors to you know Mexico or like New Mexico. I was reading recently the state of New Mexico is majority like Hispanic, right? And you don't see them playing majority his the orchestras there you know playing majority hispanic music um so so no it's it, it's las vegas philharmonic does not play enough music by mexican composers but you know la phil doesn't either um i mean but and, but do you feel compelled to go into some of those offices or go into some of those meetings and say look we need to diversify our programming yes and we we did do that to a certain extent. So I will give them a, a you know a positive shout out for our youth concerts in Las Vegas. We play to I believe it's almost every single fourth grader in Clark County, uh, Nevada. Um, 
and last uh, year's youth concert series, um, we were exploring musics of the world, and we definitely hit on Danson number two. I mean, we could have hit on oh, so course, many other. Yeah. I know, but we hit on like the one Mexican piece that everybody knows um, on Danson number two. And uh, last year or two two seasons ago, we also did um, Redes, which is by uh, Revueltas. Yeah, and yeah. that that actually caused a, a kerfuffle, Garrett, to say the least, between the audience because, you know, people started speaking out afterwards there's a post-concert conversation which almost never happens but a lot of people stayed and there was people screaming at you know in the las vegas philharmonic audience saying this is just propaganda for mexico blah 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 and oh my and, god you know, our conductor had to say like i have to remind you guys this was written like in the early 1900s wait like wait. this is from a different era let, let me make sure i'm, I'm hearing this correctly mm -hmm. so at the concert there were vocal reactions from the audience saying that this is propaganda this is you're just trying to get yep. us to oh my god so that of course that had to make you feel some type of way sitting up there on stage well by then i was already in my i remember now i was in dressing room number seven getting changed uh changing back into my regular clothes and uh, we have this tv where we can see what the you know the house is doing and what the what the stage is what's happening and um, it was um, a professor from UNAM, which is Mexico City's, you know, the National Autonomous University, and our conductor up there answering questions. And there was this audience saying, you know, I think this is propaganda. And then another audience member saying, like, no, this is ridiculous. It was not propaganda. This was just a film with Mexican music set to it. And so it got a visceral reaction, definitely, from the, from the audience. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was back there changing, like, talking to... Um, my friend uh, Carmen, the second clarinetist, and my friend Tyler, the second trombonist, saying like, "Oh wait, guys... Carmen, Carmen Izzo." Yeah, Carmen oh, yeah. Izzo, yeah. Uh, a fellow, a fellow USCer. So shout yeah, out to Carmen. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I remember looking at him. I was like, "Are you listening to this crap? Like, that's nuts out there." And um, I just feel like I would have to go out on stage. And, yeah, and, and right. I mean, did you, I don't know, that that, that just has to, you know, I, I don't want to like put words in your mouth or anything, mm -hmm. but if, if it were me, I would just feel so obligated to go out there and address that, followed up by thinking about my place in the organization and, and larger than that, my place in classical music. I mean, do you, when you think about situations like that, just flat out racism um, in the classical music hall, do you... Do you never doubt whether or not you even belong in that space? Um, yeah, yes, at times. I've, I've definitely doubted. And I think I've, I've messaged you about it because there have been times where I'm just like, I just feel like, a, you know, some the brown man up there, you know, doing his song and dance for all these rich people. And there. I imagine I, you're the only person of color in the organization. Or what, uh, among the musicians, maybe. Among the few. Yeah, definitely. Okay. One of the few Latinos. Um, or maybe the only Latino. But... Yeah, but I think what what made me not go out there was that you know this, those same audience members were being called out by other audience members saying like no no like that's that's not right that's not that's wrong so it was like a healthy conversation within the hall um, and I, I just thought like you know what this kind of needs to go organically just because like there are both sides that are being vocal um, and I think these conversations need to happen it was a little shocking that it happened in the Smith Center in Las Vegas right but yeah. it, well, yeah, maybe not to me, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, wow. I I don't think I had heard that story from you. So were there any uh, kerfuffles since then? Have there been any similar situations? Uh, no, no, there have not been. But we have also not played um, uh, music by uh, 
composers from, you know, very, you know, no, I'm going to say no, because we just had this Dvorak festival. Um, and obviously nobody went up there and said, this is just propaganda for Dvorak or so. No, that has definitely not happened since. That's interesting. So what that makes me think is, and not just specifically the Los Angeles, uh, sorry, the Las Vegas Philharmonic, but other organizations, you know, programming to stay away from those, some of those touchy subjects, especially again, considering, you know, going back to where we started our conversation, what's going on at the border today and, right. and, and, and opinions on that. It's, I don't know. I, I, you know, you know me, I don't mind shaking the table a little bit and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and ruffling feathers, but do you think orchestras should, you know, try to engage some of these political conversations or keep music completely separate? Because for you, you those yeah. two things aren't separate. You are a musician and you are someone who is Mexican. Yeah. Here's my answer to that. If if you are in an orchestra that is a border state to Mexico or maybe was prior to, you know, our current situation, a part of Mexico then yeah, yeah, you, you definitely owe it to your audiences and to yourself to program more Mexican music and make the political aspect be seen. Um, especially if you're in, you know, California, Arizona, Nuevo Mexico, Texas, Nevada, Colorado, like all these Spanish states, uh, states with Spanish names, like they have a significant, significant Hispanic, significant, in particular Mexican population. So I, I do think you, you owe it to yourself to perform more works not only by Mexican composers, but by Latin American composers and to address that political aspect. Now, if you are in, you know, further north, like, you know, Minnesota or Maine, (laughs) New Hampshire, Vermont, it's a little bit less relevant. And I feel like you're almost forcing that conversation. Um, But, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a a concert every decade or so. Or not, or not, (laughs) or not that the conversation is less relevant, but it's just not as immediate. It's not as in sight as it is for an orchestra on the Southern border or near the Southern border. Exactly. Cause uh, you know, I I mentioned Minnesota, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. Those are all border States, of course. Right. Yeah. uh, Different border, a different border. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so in closing, um, if, if there's someone listening who has never heard of any Mexican composers ever, who would you suggest they start with? Carlos Chavez. Carlos Chavez. And and if I'm remembering correctly, he was at least one of the founding members of the uh, Mexico City Philharmonic Orchestra or, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he, his, his music was um, influenced a lot by native, native Mexican cultures. And he was also a conductor, music theorist, educator. Um, worked a lot with Abreu as well, um, the, the founder of El Sistema in Venezuela. Um, but yeah, he, he's a great place to start. Definitely um, Marquez, of course. Oh yeah, Arturo but, Marquez, yeah. Yes. But um, I would start with Carlos Chavez. He's got a lot of fantastic music, uh, great quartets as well, string quartets, yeah. Well, um, Alex, gracias por tus palabras. Uh, espero verte pronto. <laughs> sí, igualmente. Muchas gracias, Garrett. <laughs> Alex Rosales Garcia in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. That was something else, wasn't it? Especially that border crossing story. I can't even imagine. Ooh, I, goodness gracious. I, and having all of these little gifts. The, the fact that he was getting these, you know, essentially Happy Meal gifts and he thought that this was, you know, oh, this is really cool. And his mother was probably just torn up on the other oh, side yeah. sending it. You oh, know? yeah. And then not to mention her story, scaling the fence and running to a Motel 6, you know, all just to have a better life. And I'm not, I, I, look, I don't want to make this political uh, or any of that, but people 
south of the American border who are trying to come here are trying to come here for a reason. They want a better life for themselves. They want to do better for their kids. They, they, they want a better future. It's not that they're coming here to do anything else but that. Fleeing violence. Right. You know. And then, and then some of them are lucky enough, you know, like Alex, to, to not only thrive here but, um, you know, uh, participate in, in what is one of America's most guarded institutions, classical music. Uh, there's a couple of things that stood out to me. First, number one, I got to correct him. Omaha Zoo. Okay. <laughs> is at the top. That's at the top. Yeah, all go right. look at their website. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. But the other thing that I really keyed into was he was talking about how he used classical music to teach life lessons, you yep. know, to get get um, some of these young people um, thinking about leadership, you yep. know, and, and, and where this could go. It's incredible. I mean, w- when I think about what classical music has done for me as, you know, outside of music, I feel like I can um, lead a group of people a little better because I understand uh, how to lead an ensemble. I know how to play my role as a non-leader in a project or a group, you know, as as someone who um, set, sat in an orchestra, you know, God forbid having to listen to a conductor. But, you know, there, there, there are lots of life lessons that you can be taught through music. And when he tells the story of, of the kids um, pulling together a traditional banda performance by themselves because they know how to read music, because they know how to play these instruments, because yeah. X, Y, and Z, that's, that's really phenomenal. Shout out to classical music, man. And uh, evidently, even back in the day, you were you were shaking the table, creating a competitive environment. You know, <laughs> I'm still not great with Sean Mauser, uh, associate principal bassoon of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, it is what it is, what it is. But um, I, I I played the heck out of that solo. There's a recording of it on my website if you're interested. <laughs> and that is uh, my website, GarrettMcQueen.com. Check it out. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, next time is going to be a little different. It's going to be, you know, people think that I am a, a table shaker and, and I like to um, take things to race. Well, the next guest on Triloquy is Lee Kuntz. He's the executive director of the Gateways Music Festival. He So the Gateways Music Festival is one he describes not as a diversity initiative. This is to, ce- to celebrate black musicians, period. Mm. And he has some opinions on that. Um, that you'll enjoy hearing next time.